This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here. We're watching here. This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the Robert De Niro to my Don Rickles, Perry Seibert. <laughs> I would have said to be Alan King, just to be clear. I would, I would have gladly taken Alan King to your Don Rickles, but that's, that's I'm more than happy to be De Niro. <laughs> How are you doing, Perry? Uh, good. I'm good. All is well in my universe. How are you and yours, Chris? We are doing well. We are kind of coming to the end of this very weird summer, but, uh, you know, it's coming in for a nice landing. So we're we're happy there. And uh, I'm excited because today we are closing out our series on Five from 95. We're going to talk about Martin Scorsese's Casino in just a moment. But before we do that, we always get into what we've been watching. Perry, what have you been watching? Because I think I've been watching it, too. Uh, I, no, I'm actually going to surprise you. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I mean, I might have watched what you were watching. I have no idea what you're going to say. But so it's been a new monthly habit in my life. One of the most exciting days of the year is the first of the month when I get to see all the things that are leaving Criterion Channel at the end of that month. Okay. So I make a giant list of all the things that I know I can't afford to miss. Um, and I caught up with something that it is truly shameful. I have not seen it to this point. Uh, because it was, uh, it made a lot of best of decade lists. And I finally got around to seeing the Iranian film, A Separation. Oh, that has long been on my list. Oh, my word, Chris. You have until the 1st of September. Uh, it will still be on the Criterion Channel. It is just spectacular. I, I, I knew it would be really good. I, I, I did not see it because I didn't think I would like it. It just, it's one of those ones that got away from me and I never went back for it. It is, really spectacular it is um the script is like a play and i mean that in the best sense i don't mean that in the not cinematic sense i mean it in that every single scene is about something and every single line has meaning even if you don't realize what it means until later and i don't mean in some sort of you know ooh surprise way i mean in a way that you realize how deeply threaded all of the dialogue is throughout the whole thing. The characters are fantastic. The performances are out of this world. And it is there. I got into a great discussion with somebody a few weeks ago about when ambiguity is good and when ambiguity is bad. <laughs> <laughs> this is an example of perfect ambiguity. <laughs> this is ambiguity that is not frustrating. Uh, it's it's a fabulous film. It is. I, I cannot I cannot speak highly enough of it. OK, and that is leaving then next tuesday as we record this september 1st yes okay yes I, you I have will. you have less than a week chris i highly recommend i will have to out. track that down because i it's been on my list it's been one of those ones i remember when it came out it was top of the list for a lot of people and then when they did the decades list yeah it came out top of those lists too so yeah there's, there's a been, reason there's been no reason why i haven't seen it except for uh the Nora Ephron kick I went on earlier in the month, which was uh, watching Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail instead of uh, a separation, apparently. <laughs> which, you know, that's not what I've been watching, but it is something I did watch and uh, well worth it. Well, well worth it. 
Of course. <laughs> well, that's good. I will have to add that to my criterion list tonight and see if I can catch up on it this weekend. Um, what I have seen, uh, I know you've seen it because we've talked briefly about it over text. Um, I saw the documentary Boy State, the Apple TV Plus documentary. Uh, it was a big hit at Sundance earlier this year when there were still film festivals and people <laughs> going into theaters. Uh, and this is a documentary about it, a program that goes on across the country um, where boys, teenage boys go to uh, the state capitol and basically do a mock politics for a week. And they do elections. They run for House of Representatives. The biggest, le- the, the highest level is governor. And it kind of tracks these teenage boys from Texas as they go to Austin and run for these offices and kind of deal with their own political views and their own, you know, convictions as to what is going to propel them. Is it going to be the platform and the things they are passionate about or are they going to succumb to power? Uh, this has been a film that has gotten a lot of great reviews. Uh, I've seen a lot of people call it one of their favorite films of the year. I will say I found it extremely entertaining. It is very fun to watch. There are some really interesting subjects in here who come off as really gripping characters. Uh, hero, There are heroes and villains to this. Um, there are some people who don't quite behave like you'd expect. Um, but that was also part of my problem with it was I felt like in... In shaping this narrative, it kind of succumbs to the things it's trying to warn against, which is this, uh, you know, categorizing someone very simply. And I, I don't know. I know you saw it. And um, what did you think of Boy State? Uh, so this is that great example of, you know, splitting the difference between what you're seeing and how you're seeing it for mm-hmm. me. And this will go back to if anybody wants an hour on this, just go back and listen to our documentary episode. Because this film does everything I don't like when documentaries do. Um, so up front, I'm just going to say that the, the central figure in this movie, Stephen Garza, mm-hmm. is a fabulous, fabulous human to follow around. That's, he is, his story is utterly compelling. He is utterly compelling. Um, if the film didn't feel the need to shape itself to be so entertaining Mm -hmm. it would it would come across all the more how compelling he is (laughs) because they don't seem to need to do a lot to make him really compelling unlike a lot of other people that they how they manipulate their stories there's a shot in the movie uh and i'll tell you it's the point where i broke faith with the movie during one of the early big uh the one of the big group early scenes where they're all together voting on something and giving speeches and there's a shot of that kid mcdougall uh and he's he's looking down uh and then we and we see him looking down and then we cut to he's staring at his phone he's scrolling through instagram photos on his phone and i know that shot isn't real because i saw the shot right before and there was no camera in behind him (laughs) he was not being filmed looking at his phone and at that point i'm like no you want something else from me you're not telling me the truth (laughs) you do something that that egregious I know you don't want me to know this is the truth. You want me to have some other reaction. And so my defenses go up. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are. Um, and so then I started to think about, well, what is it? What story are you trying to tell me? Why are we doing this? And so I got very much stuck on uh, a, fam- <laughs> a famous uh, quote from 
uh, William Golding, who wrote Lord of the Flies. And someone once asked him, how come there are no girls in Lord of the Flies? And he said, because it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> and that's all I could think about to the back half of this movie. I'm like, wow, if this this doesn't work as a, like an expose of, you know, how our democracy is going to go, because there's no women. Mm-hmm. There's no women. And no. so so what are we talking about? What did you really accomplish? You accomplished reminding me how much I hate 17 year old boys and maybe particularly 17 year old boys from Texas. That's all you've accomplished <laughs> with this movie for me. Other than introduce me to Steven Garza, who is the kind of person who you hope does exactly what he wants to do with his life. <laughs> yeah, he seems to have it all together very early what he wants. Not that he's not that he's ready to be president, but that he knows what he wants to do. He dis- you get to watch him in the moment discover he has the skill set to do that. Mm-hmm. That's heartening and wonderful. And I think that it is uh, I think it is problematic that they spend so much time on so many other characters who are uh, just repellent by, by the wow. end of the movie. <laughs> One thing that came up when we were talking about documentaries was the idea of would you rather see the documentary version of this or the narrative version of this? And I, this is a situation where I think I'd rather see someone dramatize this and, and actually deal with some of the internal struggles that are going on with these, with these boys. Um, because there's a really interesting thread in some cases of what is it like to be a, you know, a liberal in a very conservative state. And I feel like there's a good dramatic angle there, but I don't, like you said, I don't trust that the film is showing me the truth of what that, what that is like. It, it really goes out of its way to shape who the heroes and villains are to the point where, you know, Steve Garza and um, I think it's Renee is the the uh, team captain at one end, who's a very outspoken liberal and kind of mar- marshals the party behind him. Um, I, I feel like they come off almost saint-like. And then the other characters are, are subjects who are, you know, edited a certain way are very villainous and very treacherous. And that just, it, it feels such like so perfectly in a narrative that I, I it just doesn't ring real to me when I think about yeah. it for five minutes. And so uh, I, I would rather see that. Um, I would rather see a longer exploration of this that uh, maybe observes what happens at the girls' states. <laughs> you know, are they, are they the same way as the boys' state? Yes. It, agreed entirely. Is there a boys' state? How does boys' state in Texas differ from Boy State in Delaware. Because if we're saying this is the future of our nation, Austin's not indicative necessarily of our nation. Texas isn't, you know, indicative of our entire nation. And I feel by focusing on this one Boy State, this particular Boy State, it lays a claim that I don't know that it can back up. Yeah. And on top of that, I have two other really serious qualms with it. One is that these kids are 17. Mm-hmm. I, that's, I know that's you. Who's okay. Did parents okay this? <laughs> and if they didn't, you have a responsibility not to portray kids this awfully. <laughs> I, I think it's really, really kind of, I, I find it morally questionable. I'll be kind and use the word questionable. What, what they do how they choose to propose to make these, some of these kids look, I think is, is I, I just, I just, I find it irresponsible. Even if, even if a 70 year old agrees to it, I don't think that that's worthwhile. It's another reason why, yeah, I'm agreeing with you. 
a dramatized version of this would probably play better. Yeah, yeah, it, I think that would just be a much better, more helpful exploration. Um, but we're in the minority on that. I mean, Boy State's uh, available now on Apple TV+. Plus. You can check it out and see if you agree with us or uh, the people who are wrong. But And if nothing else, it shows you whatever you think of Dazed and Confused and Everybody Wants Some, Richard <laughs> Linklater knows exactly yes. what 17-year-old Texas boys are like. Yes, uh, Robert they Mc- are right out of those movies. Robert McDougal wandered in off the set of Everybody Wants Some. It, it just seems that he, yes. he fits so perfectly. It's as if Richard Linklater and Ashton Kutcher had a child. <laughs> there it is. That is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we're going to move on to some more morally questionable things. Uh, we are going to... <laughs> conclude our miniseries five from 95 uh we have talked about seven we have talked about smoke we've talked about 12 monkeys and we've talked about what am i missing mall rats thank you oh i really want yes i really wanted to forget mall rats i don't know i don't know what that was i'm sorry (laughs) whoa i really wanted to forget mall rats um but uh but yes we've talked about those if you haven't listened to them i recommend you go back and listen to them they're fun episodes uh a lot of times you get to see us kind of come to terms with a movie in real time on it Uh, i thought the 12 monkeys one was a lot of fun um but today we are closing it out with martin scorsese's 1995 epic casino um yeah, Perry, I, I guess, why don't you take it away on this? Because this was your choice. You are our resident uh, Scorsese disciple. And so why don't you take away? Why Why did you want to choose uh, Casino to close this out? Uh, for a variety of reasons. I love it. I, I think it's I think it's great. Uh, I have I, it opened Thanksgiving weekend, the same day that the first Toy Story opened. Oh, wow. To give you some sort of perspective <laughs> of where American filmmaking was. In November of 1995. Uh, and I also think it would be, I wanted, uh, I, I was excited to talk about it with you most specifically because I, I know everybody's, you know, everybody pairs De Niro and Scorsese, rightfully so. But Casino was the last time they'd worked together before The Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a span of 24 years. And if you go back 24 years from Casino, it's 1971 and they haven't worked together yet. So I think it's really good to sort of – it, it puts in stark relief how much both of them have evolved over the last 25 years. I can't believe the casino is a quarter century old. I'm so old now, Chris. <laughs> I'm, I'm so old. So that was all the reasons why I was very excited uh, for you to see it and to talk about it with you. And I, I truly didn't know what your reaction to it would be. Yeah, I will. I will say first off, I avoided this movie for a long time um, and not out of any aversion. Like I didn't want to see it. It was more I knew that it came out five years after Goodfellas. I knew Nicholas Pileggi was the screenwriter of this. It's much the same cast as Goodfellas. And so it really to me, I was kind of worried that, oh, it's a retread. It's Goodfellas part two. Um, or Goodfellas Part 3, if you count My Blue Heaven as Goodfellas Part 2. Um, <laughs> the, the Doctor Strange Love to Goodfellas <laughs> Failsafe. Or flip those, I guess, really, artistically. But totally, that's, well, this is an interesting show to do. All right, we'll table that for later. So I had, uh, I had kind of just 
held off on this one because I, I part of my thinking was, well, if I'm going to catch up on Martin Scorsese's stuff, I've already seen Goodfellas, so I can probably wait a bit on Casino because it's probably a lot like Goodfellas. Um, and then any, I, I, my wife, I've talked about this on the last one. She, uh, when we started dating, I remember her talking about seeing Casino and it being the most horrifying movie she had ever seen. Uh, the violence was just so <laughs> disturbing. But she was not the only person who had told me that. Everyone who talked about this movie to me had told me they just yes. could not handle the violence in this movie. So I kind of had this hesitation because I didn't want to retread Goodfellas, which is a movie I love. Uh, and I didn't know if the violence would be a little too much for me. Uh, all that said, I mean, I can understand the people who said this has a little too much in common with Goodfellas or has a lot in common with Goodfellas because on the surface, sure, it's the same screenwriter. It's much of the same cast. He uses the dueling uh, monologues uh, or narrator. Um, yes. It, it feels a lot like Goodfellas, but I don't think it ever feels like a retread. When I was watching it, first off, it's just it's just plain entertaining and more of Goodfellas is not a bad thing. Um like I, <laughs> like I love uh -huh. Goodfellas, and this is Martin Scorsese doing a lot of that with the same energy and you know the same skill. You don't. This isn't him phoning it in, but I think it's it's more of an evolution. It's widening the lens. It's yeah. It's looking at almost what is bigger than the mob. What's more powerful and maybe more evil than the mob? It's Vegas. Um, it's this thing that. You know, it, it, at the end of the movie, the mob is defeated by Vegas almost. Uh, it mm -hmm. doesn't need them anymore. Uh, and I found that fascinating. Um, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I found the, uh, violence. It's bracing and it's ugly and it's, uh, you know, Joe Pesci's death at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert, I guess. It, it's hard to watch, but I, I mean, with Scorsese, that happens a lot of time and that's always the point. It's that's the end of these things. That's that's how this ends for these people. And uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed this. I I was really, I it, the three hours passed by extremely quickly for me. Good. I'm very happy to hear that. It is, yeah. It is as far as the Goodfellas comparisons go. Um, I'm gonna. Uh, so I think we've had. I think we've had fairly recently a conversation about you know. There are, I believe it has become to be the critical acceptance that Godfather 2 is better than the Godfather. I don't believe that for a second. I, th I think the Godfather 2 <laughs> is a full step down from the Godfather, which is to say it's a step down from absolute perfection. I'm not knocking Godfather 2 mm -hmm. in any capacity. I just think it's not nearly the film that, that the Godfather is. Um, I will accept an argument that Casino is actually a better film than Goodfellas. It's less entertaining, to be sure. Well, you know, the difference here is that Goodfellas is fun. You are Henry Hill for the first half of that movie, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. It's so much fun. The payoff for Goodfellas is how not fun it is <laughs> by the end. There's no sense of joy in this. I mean, there's, there's, there's energy. It moves. It's not static. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, deadly, drolly serious. It's not as punishing as Godfather 2 is. But it is not fun. And that's really the difference between Casino and, and Goodfellas. You know, Coppola talked about how he wanted to make, he only made Godfather 2 to make it clear how awful the Corleones are. And I feel like, you know, De Niro wanted to return to this to show, 
and Scorsese too to show how you know how at the center of the mob what will keep you alive is do you make money that's because <laughs> that's all that ace rothstein does yeah that's what he does that's what he's good at that's why he lives uh and that's such a greater statement <laughs> about america at large and possibly humankind than than goodfellas makes well i i think it is it's it's fascinating i i almost wanted I, I wanted to imagine what Goodfellas would have looked like with De Niro in the Leota role, because it would have been such an interesting evolution of, of that actor, um, because Ray Liotta, Henry Hill is so, like you say, he's so enthralled to be part of the mob in that. Like that, the, there's that allure, that's the whole reason he's drawn into that. And mm-hmm. Ace... Ace is annoyed by the mob at best. Like he wants to be there doing his thing, making the money and it's a necessary evil that keeps him there. But anytime, anytime Joe Pesci comes in, he is annoyed by that. He is just, he knows that does not end well. And it's all the mob stuff in here. None of it is alluring. You know, there's the result of having the money from the casino, but anytime Joe Pesci or the mobsters show up, it's it's ugly and it's dangerous and it just you can feel you can feel ace just kind of dying a little bit inside because he knows this is what would bring him down and it 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 is interesting and it's an interesting step then to see um well i'm gonna go back a little bit i i heard this theory and and this made a lot of sense to me um that if you look at goodfellas casino and then wolf of wall street it's also this evolution of how crime has become legitimized in America. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. So yes. because by the end of this movie, it sets up the fact that, you know, who the mob is out by the end of this movie, but Vegas is still going. And who's who's coming to replace the mob? It's the corporations. And that sets the and stage. Yep. And that sets the stage for Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, yep. And I, I thought that was fascinating just to kind of see it as this link. How do you get from there to there? Um, yeah, it, it really, I mean, it, it feels different than Goodfellas, even when it's doing some of the, some similar things. I think it, Goodfellas was the first one I saw. So I, that probably holds a little bit more of a special place in my heart. But I think, I don't, like I said, I don't think he's phoning it in. I don't think it's a retread. I think it's what, what interested him doing Goodfellas that was just on the periphery of that story. And now we can widen the lens out and see kind of a a bigger scope and how that fits into American history a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree that that's, I think it is a, I think it is a bigger and grander take on a grand theme. Goodfellas is the more interesting aesthetic experience by far. I mean, you know, you can argue if you're just looking at the story that, Henry Hill is not nearly punished enough mm-hmm. for for what he for how much joy he gets during the first half of the movie. But the movie is so sensorially unpleasant in its last forty five minutes. <laughs> you are you know you you get to feel the rush in Goodfellas, and then you you get to feel how awful it feels. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is truly an ex, it, it is it is an experiential thing to to go through Goodfellas, and this is not that. This is this is a more cerebral exercise, uh, not to say that, it's, you know, and again, not to make it sound like it doesn't have really funny stuff in it. It does. And that like we were saying before, this it, it moves. Yeah, it does not feel like three hours. It, it, it just doesn't. 
and it's and it's partly part of it is and this is something i don't think we've talked about a lot on the show this is one of the few movies that perfects the two-act structure we talk a lot about the three-act structure about mm-hmm. you know you got your you got your setup in the first act your turning point your middle turning and then you know your your deflating action and all that the two-act structure is really simple you show a world and then there is a point at which everything flips and then you see the mirror opposite dark through the looking glass version of everything you saw in the first act. And that's what this movie is. The, the turning point is when he refuses to rehire uh, Billy Bob Briggs mm-hmm. to, to help fix this, <laughs> to work in, the, work in the casino in any capacity. That is the point at which you then see the, the flipped opposite of everything. I agree with you. The most horrific thing in the movie is Joe Pesci and his brother's death. The, the killing of Joe Pesci and his brother, you know, it is brutal. It is really hard to watch. It's still hard to watch, even though I know it's coming. But it needs to be because it's the mirror of the scene, you know, before the before the turning point where he stabs that guy in the neck with the pen just because he insults De Niro. And he says, uh, you hear that crying? You hear, you hear him crying? And there, then we have Joe Pesci crying, watching his brother be killed at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a reason for everything in the movie. It's not three hours because he wants to tell tell the story for three hours. It's because it needs to go three yeah. hours. Yeah. Um, and I also love the movie because I think it's even a better – It is it is even more Pelleggi's movie than Goodfellas because Pelleggi really the, – the nonfiction book of Casino is totally worth a read. It's, it's okay. really excellent and it's great reporting and it's not – you know, it is – it is very much, it, and you'd be you'd be amazed how close the movie follows. Like I don't know why they changed the name, but they did, and I'm, I'm glad they did for whatever reason because it made for a great movie. But it is, you know, it is such a great piece of reporting, and this movie explains how things work. <laughs> In that case, just like Goodfellas, you know, the, some of the fun of Goodfellas is finding out how the day to day operations of the mafia work. Uh, just like it's fun to find out how the day-to-day operations of a casino and how the you you get some sense of how the mob actually made all the money off the place. <laughs> yeah, which is I don't really I couldn't explain it, but I know I feel like I know <laughs> after seeing the movie, and that's that's a great feeling. Well, there's two great sequences that I, I really stuck with me, and they're both kind of early in the film. And the first explains that how they staff the casino and look the other way when the guy walks into the count room and then walks yes. out with a bag of money. And that's again, like like you said, I couldn't explain everything that's going on there, but I get it. Like I understand yeah. what they're saying. The other scene I love is when um when Ace discovers the people cheating. and it just the movie slows down so much so that you are in his head watching him watch them and every detail that he sees you're picking up on um to the point where i felt like there were certain certain instances where the screen was getting dark and highlighting places to show where everyone and and that was that was fascinating to watch it was like that's why you come to these movies so many times it's for sequences like that yeah like it's so much going on, and maybe it's the span of 30 seconds real time, but the movie slows down to take the time to show how everything's working. And I like I just love sitting and watching that. And so that that was that impressed me right off the bat. Um, but then, yeah, like Goodfellas, too, there are just the little episodic moments that are so bizarre and yet 
they're funny and they're funny like they fit in this world like where the uh the plane lands on the golf course right outside ace's house as he's being interviewed yes like i I found that that was fun to watch um my favorite is the sequence in which we find out as if we haven't understood uh ace rothstein perfectly to this point as if we didn't understand the control freak nature of ace rothstein the meltdown and demanding that every blueberry muffin have the same number of blueberries (laughs) in it is so funny and still to the point still on character it's so good yeah um i yeah i really like watching de niro in this so shortly after seeing the irishman it's interesting because in many ways, he's not as passive a character as he is in that, where that character is kind of, I'll just do whatever, just tell me, just whatever. But he he's very much detached in certain ways. He's Oh, yeah. He, he wants to just, like, he basically, he just wants to be doing that job and recognized for doing that job. And, you know, Joe Pesci comes in and messes with all of that. But it's also, there's this really sad thread in the relationship uh, he has with Sharon Stone where he knows this is a woman who doesn't love him except for what he can give her. And he kind of is okay with that. And so he's just giving her, yeah, basically buying her presence with that. Um, yeah. I, I really like Sarah, Sharon Stone in this as well. Uh, it's the best part she ever got. <laughs> uh, she knows it. <laughs> uh, uh, my favorite story about the making of the movie is they were setting all this up. And then, uh, and Marty wanted more money to make the movie, as he always does. And then they signed Sharon Stone, and Universal doubled the budget of the movie because <laughs> he got a real movie star <laughs> at the time to be in it. Uh, you know, she got her Oscar nomination. Uh, she doesn't not deserve it. I, I-, I think the part's fine. <laughs> I-, I-, I don't think it's the. I-, I don't think it's as interesting as Lorraine Bracco's character in Goodfellas. Uh, no, and I, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think there's anything to play there other than someone who is, you know, who is uh, uh, in the nuclear war sense a cockroach, someone whose only mm-hmm. only point is survival. She really doesn't have anything else to play. And I'm not. I'm not saying Sharon Stone gives a one note performance. Not at all. I think it's a very good performance. Uh, I just think the character is not terribly interesting, and I don't know if that's because. The movie is so, you know, you talk about the two voiceovers, but the two voiceovers are, you know, De Niro and uh, De Niro's Ace and Joe Pesci's Nikki. Mm-hmm. It's it's not Ginger. No, <laughs> and I would I we don't I was, get Ginger's view at all. We see Ginger as Ace sees her. Yeah, I I would have liked to have her having that voiceover the way Lorraine Bracco did in Goodfellas. Uh, I think that would have rounded out the character. I think she's she's good though. I. I yeah. like the performance, but she's she's playing what she's given. Um, yeah, yeah. What else you got on this one? Uh, I, I love it because even through all this, there are the moments that are obviously uh, Scorsese, just visually and sonically that have that aren't you know that aren't dependent on it being this story in particular. That like the true thumbprints, and my favorite moment of that is. Uh, you know, after the sequence where he sees Ginger for the first time, which is on a screen, right? It's mm-hmm. one of the one of the security cameras captures her giving a guy a hard time after he she expects a cut of the money that he won at the table. Uh, 
and he goes down to see her and he's blown away by how she looks uh, just on screen in black and white. And then we go down and see her in the flesh and uh, in a sequence in which my wife walked through and said, oh, wow, her clothes are great. Which <laughs> is always interesting. Uh, but then she uh, at one point she's just grabbing stacks of chips and she throws them in the air. And Scorsese gives us the mirror, the answer shot from the shot in Last Temptation of seeing the coins of the moneylenders fly into the air in the temple. Instead, we get the shot looking down instead of looking up and Sharon Stone throws those throws those chips up at us. It's a moment like that that, you know, that makes me that's the auteurist moment that makes me cackle and giggle and just reverberate with joy every time I see it. And why, yeah, one of the many reasons I love it. In addition to Robbie Robertson's nonstop three-hour soundtrack of rock and pop tunes. <laughs> this movie's got more music in it than Magnolia. I'm convinced it has more music in it, note for note, scene for scene, than Magnolia. And that's saying something. Um, one thing I had forgotten, too, and it's funny because when I saw The Irishman, I had been surprised at how quiet Joe Pesci is in that. Yeah. And it's funny because I hadn't expected that because I knew how he had been used in Goodfellas. Well, I think I had the Irishman still in my head because I had forgotten Joe Pesci can just be terrifying. Yes. And and it's funny because he's he's terrifying in Goodfellas and in this. But in this it's it's what if that character had some power to him as well. Like he he can get away with the awful things he does and you just you know from the start because they tell you you know we screwed all this up you know that every time he's beating someone in the alley or you know skimming at the casino that it's just building to bad things like they tell you that right at the beginning that this oh, yeah. doesn't end well for them and so that just that that's just another sickening layer under some really awful stuff the uh the guy in the vice was uh that was that was one moment where I was like, "Oh yeah, I this this one might have been." Don't make too me do this, man! Yeah. Don't make me do this! Don't make me do this! Don't make me be a bad guy here. Oh, but but yeah, I mean that's so that that sells how terrifying he is, and you just when you see it happen, you just know it, like it's that extra layer of sick because you just know this this doesn't end up working out for him, so it's still all for nothing ultimately. There's a story. I have no idea if it's true. I saw it. I saw somebody, a, a film person I sometimes see tweets by, posted this and said that there was a, there's a, he was, uh, that at some point when Scorsese was editing this, uh, Spike Lee came to visit. Spike Lee dropped by during the editing and that they spent 20 minutes just screening the full version of that scene, which is not in the movie. This is infamously the movie. Infamously, this is the scene that was cut from the movie in order to let a lot of other violence go. Like they knew they needed some incredibly gory piece of violence that they would sacrifice in order to keep all the other stuff they knew they needed and wanted. And it was that, that yes, at one point, if you've never seen the movie, Joe Pesci puts a guy's head in a vice, tightens it. You see his whole face bulging. You see his eyes start to bulge out. And yes, at one point, you don't see it in the movie, but the eye pops. And the story goes that, that Spike Lee and Marty are watching this over and over, cackling like schoolboys. It's just ceaselessly funny to watch the gag over and over and over. Because <laughs> it is a gag. They know they're not going to put it in the movie. Yeah. But they love that they got away with filming it and that they were going to use it to get all the stuff he wanted in the movie. I, 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 that is the spirit with which this movie is made. <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned Pelegi, how this is really kind of his baby in many ways. And it makes me think back when the, the one issue I had when I started and it worked itself out the more I thought about it was the narration seemed a little bit off to me. When it started, I'm like, uh, De Niro and Joe Pesci are both, their narration just, it, it's not like Goodfellas where it's very, you know, passionate and excited. It's its very matter-of-factly, very almost, just, yeah. just by the way, like, you know, even even Joe Pesci, who's more of the, you know, the hothead character, his, he sounds very kind of disconnected in his in his voiceover. And it, what I realized it sounded like, and this fits in with, you know, Pelegi's background, it's the tone people would have if they were talking to a reporter about all this stuff. It's, yes. It's that very matter-of-fact way of explaining something they are intimately familiar with that by now it's boring to them or they're just kind of bemused by. Um, but it really leads to some really great lines. Uh, there's there's that moment where Ace find, kind of is putting together that Ginger is cheating on him with Nikki. And his line is, I just hope it's not somebody who I think it might be. Yes. Which is such a good line. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I the script for this is really good. The The dialogue in this is, is really fantastic. But it, it does. It feels real. Like, this doesn't feel like movie gangsters the same way Goodfellas didn't either. It feels like you are getting to kind of talk to the experts in a way and the people who had lived through this and it it gives it that authenticity that i think makes it stick a little bit more too yeah it's not it's not reveling in those 70s clothes Mm -hmm. it's recording them yeah that was the fashion that was and let's face it there is no cinematographer more born to shoot las vegas than robert richardson who is fantastic does a fantastic job as the DP on this movie, mm-hmm. I, I will t- I, you know this, this might be my favorite, uh, one of my two favorite films that he's ever shot. I'm just for the cinematography. He nails it. It's, it, you know, I, no, I don't know a film that feels like Vegas, like this film feels like Vegas. Both the mythic Vegas that they, that, you know, they want to believe in and the real one. <laughs> that, that desert has a very Kubrick 2001 feel to it when we're out there. There is, there is, there is heat and there is death all around in that desert and it, it plays. Well, and also um, the Saul Bass titles at the beginning are Saul Bass's last title sequence. Oh yes. man, that, that is such a such a great sequence because, you know, it, it plays off the glitz and glamour of Vegas, but then there's the fire from the explosion and it's this kind of hell that seems to be erupting from there. Um, and I was kind of ruined on it though, because one of the only other times I've walked out of a movie was uh, Jane Austen's Mafia. I don't know, don't don't know if you recall that one. I never saw it, but I know the movie you're talking about. Okay, yes. it's awful. I, I left after like 15 minutes, but it opens with the sequence of I believe it's Jay Moore in the movie yes. going out to his car, opening it, and the car blows up, and then he's floating through the flames. Um, so I like, I, I was like, oh yeah, I've seen this in an awful movie, but it's still, oh, it's, it's so effective. But in, yeah. in Jane Austen's Mafia, he's like floating through and slam dunking basketballs and stuff like that. Of course he is. <laughs> it's, it's awful. Of uh, course but it, he is. it really is too, like that over the top beginning that just, it kind of just sets up the, just the epic feel of this, that this is going to be something that spans years and really is, it, it also gets to the, 
it, there's this kind of soul death at the, at the heart of many of these movies. Like it's this whole idea of you're gaining what you've always wanted. You're you're gaining the wealth and the allure and all that, and it kills you to get all that. And that 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 title sequence sets all that up. That whole feeling of just the glitz and glamour, yeah. and also the hell that that's gonna come. Yeah. And that the man who knows all the angles and gets all the information and knows everything just can't bet right on a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, just can't. <laughs> and that's and it's not the woman's fault. He knows this going in, and that's that's another that's another element that is, for me, very uh, at least within Scorsese's universe, very original. I don't know that take from him before on on relationships that's that's new to me and one of the things i love about it it's this is this is a portrait of a guy who knows all of the angles and knows exactly how to risk what except on this and that's fascinating it's part of the reason ginger is you know it's it's where ginger is an interesting character because she does she's you know she's the classic she's the she's the scorpion on the frog right crossing the river mm-hmm. She's, she can't help it. She's, she's, she's just self-destructive. And at the same time, we'll do anything to stay alive. <laughs> she is that. And she is that duality incarnate. And it's fascinating to watch that play against, you know, this entity that is all knowing and can see every angle and knows exactly what needs to be done. But for some reason, can't do it in the face of that. And that's, that's really intriguing and one of the reasons I go back to the movie every few years. Yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. What was funny is I thought I would at walk away trying to rank it. Like, do I like it better than Goodfellas? Do I like it better than, you know, Irishman? And, and, and really, you can't do that because these are all of a piece. They are all informing each other in many ways. And Goodfellas gives way to Casino, which then gives way to Wolf of Wall Street. And uh, I, I found it just it just fit nicely with all these movies that I already loved. Yeah. Um, and to think it opened the same day as Toy Story. That, that is crazy. <laughs> yeah. It was a good Thanksgiving weekend. I'll bet. I, I was at the theater seeing Toy Story that weekend. Uh, not not Casino, but uh, that that would be a great double feature. I I saw them on back-to-back days. Oh, I did, did not you? see them the same day, but yes. Okay. Oh, I was at Goodfellas the Wednesday of Thanksgiving Day when it opened. I was like, I'm there. I was, I'm not going to miss a second of Casino. Uh, and then we, I think we saw Toy Story Friday. Okay. Um, I think when we had suggested this series, you had suggested uh, maybe doing – maybe I pick Toy Story. And then we would have Toy Story and Casino, two movies that open on the same day. <laughs> but I really wanted to get that Mall Rats in. You know, change it up. Do the unexpected. <laughs> oh, I regret the Mall Rats one. Um, do you have anything else on Casino? Uh, I, um, uh, I'll get just a couple more things just cause I'm not yeah. thinking about it and I love it. I love, uh, it's, you can see, uh, how much Paul Thomas Anderson lifted from Casino and Goodfellas for Boogie Nights now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are straight, absolute shot sequences right out of Casino in Boogie Nights, uh, and uh, I love the use of music. I was teasing the Robbie Robertson soundtrack picks earlier, but I love the repeated use of Devo's cover of 
satisfaction. Oh yeah, uh, that's yeah. another great. That's another great you know moment that that resonates through all of Scorsese for how often he's used the Stones, you know, <laughs> to have this to have the Devo version of that song play over and over and over is is super effective. Um, and I will say that I uh, you know we have talked and we'll talk again. I'm sure about you know the the inherent Catholicism in all of Scorsese's work. And I will say that there might not be a single line of dialogue, a better monologue that encapsulated than the following. You ready? Yes. In Vegas, everybody's got to watch everybody. Since the players are looking to beat the casino, the dealers are watching the players. The boxmen are watching the dealers. The floormen are watching the boxmen. The pit bosses are watching the floormen. The shift bosses are watching the pit bosses. The casino manager is watching the shift bosses. I'm watching the casino manager. And the eye in the sky is watching us all. Oh, that is <laughs> I hadn't even I hadn't even thought of that in connection to Catholicism, but that does. Yes, that's to me oh. to me that's that's God always watching. Yeah, that is fantastic. I hadn't even made that connection. I always assume, you know, the screenplay is credited to both Pelagi and Scorsese. I always assume Marty wrote that speech. <laughs> it, it would fit. It, it would absolutely fit with everything he's done. Uh, what I did not know, I, I looked this up. Uh, I, I looked up the trivia on this. I didn't know he had agreed to make this. Um, it's kind of a thank you to Universal Studios because of their help with Last Temptation of Christ. Yes. Um, he did this in Cape Fear. Yes. Um, not so much a thank you. <laughs> he kind of had to I owed it to them yeah and he's made references to there is one amazing inscrutable quote from him to me over the last 20 years in which he says you know this was my most miserable time when i was making movies that i felt like i had to and i have never been sure if that was casino or cape fear or um uh 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 uh, the the Dennis Lehane at Shutter Island. <laughs> Those are the only three I can think of that feel like, well, maybe you didn't want to and you felt like you had to. But I have no idea. If, I have no idea if those are the films or not. Well, I but know. yes, absolutely. He was making it up to Universal for, for uh, yes. <laughs> I know with Cape Fear that was originally going to be Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg was going to do Cape Fear, and Scorsese was going to do Schindler's Schindler's List. List. Yep, and. That would have been a very interesting turn of events. Uh, I think Spielberg's career would have gone a lot differently after that. Uh, I don't know what would have happened. That's it is so it, it is as impossible to fathom as Kubrick's AI. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it 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 worked out the way it was supposed to. I know I don't want to see Spielberg's Cape Fear. No, but I do want to see Scorsese's Schindler's List. Oh, I, I would love to see yeah. that. Um, yeah, I mean, I really have nothing else to say on this except that uh, I'm really thankful that I got the chance to see it because um, it is one of those ones that I, like I said, I had put it off and I kind of wish I had gone back to it 10, 15 years ago and watched it uh, because I probably would have watched it many more times by now. Um, it also made me want to rewatch Goodfellas, which I didn't get to do, but will be happening soon because <laughs> I know uh, Glenn Kenny has a book coming out about the making of Goodfellas in September that I want to read. Yes, he and, does. Supposedly had access to De Niro's diary and notes oh, for, the, for the during the shoot. So we might talk about that on a later episode <laughs> sometime. So, um, yeah, how are you feeling about 95? How, would it, how did it feel to revisit 
some of these films. You know, we talked about we talked about my three favorite films of the, the year. <laughs> How am I going to complain? Uh, you yeah. know, I, I I I still think they are. I still think Smoke Seven and Casino are remarkable films, and I have no problem. I, you know, and I, it is. Let's remember, 1995 was the year of Kevin Pollack because he was also in The Usual Suspects, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's and he's very good in both this and The Usual Suspects. <laughs> 25 years ago, Kevin Pollack could be a movie star. That's how much life has changed over this time, Chris. <laughs> well, I I really enjoyed being uh, introduced to this film as well as Smoke, um, and revisiting Seven was was great. Um, Twelve Monkeys was an interesting one for me to revisit because. If you guys have listened to this podcast, I, I kind of uh, wrestled with my what I thought of that film on here because I I think I left feeling a totally different way after we were done recording. Um, and mall rats should just burn in hell. <laughs> so <laughs> no, no, that's that's Jersey Girl. That's... <laughs> uh, okay, but under that level, there's a level where Red State is sitting as well. So <laughs> well, that's true. That's Red State. Red State should be like Nikki's brother, <laughs> and, and, and it's and Red Jersey State and Tusk. Nikki. Well, then you throw Tusk on top of them too. God, we don't even worry about Tusk. We Tusk does not even register. Tusk. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Perry, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. You can find me on Facebook. You can hear me every Friday morning on the Lucien Lance Show. Go find it out there online. It's available. And, uh, you know, you can hear me nervously jotting away in a notebook a list on the first of every month of what films are going to leave the Criterion channel. All right. You can find me at Mere Christianity on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at BHM Pop Culture. Uh, you can listen to another podcast I do about once a month um, called Cross Culture Critic. It's kind of a pop culture faith type thing. Um, and I should be starting a newsletter about the time this publishes. Uh, and it, I will link to it in the show notes. It is uh, criticisms, kind of ties together all my writing and podcasts. And uh, yeah, it's a good way to keep track of me. And we can I back. put? Can I give you one more plug? You absolutely can. I completely should have mentioned. I was uh, invited to be a guest on a different podcast called Cathode Ray Mission, where uh, 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 men named Adam Ferenz invited me on to do a deep dive through the entire filmography of Stanley Kubrick, and had an absolute blast. You can find that podcast out there, and uh, had a had a very very good time, and very thankful to be on it, and uh, was invited to come back to go through all of Scorsese sometime oh, later wow. in the year. So. That'll take up a good 72 hours straight. I will not stop talking <laughs> for three full days. I'm working on my endurance on my vocal cords now. <laughs> and you can actually find that article. I'll put it in the show notes, but it's also on our Facebook page. Uh, so you can actually find that episode right there and listen to it uh, right away. So we will see you all in two weeks. <laughs>